Okay, Robbie, what's on your radar today? All right, well, I've got some exclusive breaking uh, reporting. This has just gone live, and you can read the full article at uh, Reason.com, or if you look at my Twitter feed, it's there. But I'm also just going to read it to you now, so you can just listen up. President Joe Biden's plan to forgive hundreds of billions of dollars in student loan debt violates both federal law and the Constitution, according to a just-filed lawsuit from the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is a libertarian law firm. This isn't how laws are supposed to be made, Caleb Kruckenberg, an attorney for PLF, told me. Only Congress has the power to pass laws and spend money under the Constitution. The administration's actions here are flagrantly illegal. So this is the first serious challenge to Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, which he announced last month and we've talked on the show, talked about on the show exhaustively. The lawsuit's plaintiff is Frank Garrison, who's also an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Garrison borrowed federal student loans to pay for law school. But according to him, Biden's debt forgiveness plan will actually subject him to a financial penalty in the form of a state tax. So this gives him standing to sue the U.S. Education Department, his lawsuit argues. Quote, despite the staggering scope of this regulatory action, it was taken with breathtaking informality and opaqueness, the lawsuit claims. In the rush, the administration has created new problems for borrowers in at least six states that tax loan cancellations as income. According to Garrison, he is already receiving debt relief under the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. That's PSLF, not PLF, which is the law firm. PSLF is the loan forgiveness program uh, for borrowers who work in public service at nonprofit organizations. So qualifying borrowers who make a certain number of payments and then meet maximum income requirements can have the rest of their debts forgiven by PSLF. Garrison expects to qualify in about four years for that forgiveness. Now, importantly, debt relief under PSLF, that program, is not subject to state taxes. Biden's broad forgiveness plan, however, will be taxed as income in Indiana, where Garrison resides, as well as Wisconsin, North Carolina, Minnesota, Mississippi, and Arkansas. Garrison will be, quote, stuck with a tax bill that makes him financially worse off than continuing with his repayment program under PSLF, according to the lawsuit. He did not ask for cancellation, doesn't want it, and has no way to opt out of it. The administration's slapdash lawmaking by press release approach to student debt cancellation threatens to leave tens of thousands of borrowers stuck with a tax bill on money they'll never see in states like Indiana, where it will be taxed as income, says Kruckenberg. Now, while the Pacific Legal Foundation's theory is that this gives Garrison standing to sue the Education Department, the lawsuit's case against the Biden forgiveness plan is that part is actually much more straightforward. We talked about it on the show. The Pacific Legal Foundation is arguing that Biden has violated both the Constitution and the Administrative Procedure Act, which gives Congress, rather than the president, the power to make new regulations. Biden's new plan will forgive up to $20,000 worth of debt for many borrowers, and the plan could cost U.S. taxpayers anywhere between $300 billion and a trillion dollars. A low estimate of the cost per individual taxpayer is $2,000, $2,100. The administration has claimed that it has the power to unilaterally forgive student loan debts without consulting Congress. As justification, Biden has cited 2003's Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students, or the HEROES Act. So this law gave the president some authority to cancel or delay student loan repayments during national emergencies, with the clear intention of offering relief to borrowers who were serving in combat operations during the war on terror. Biden's view is that the COVID-19 pandemic counts as a national emergency, even though he has now declared it definitively over. Remember that? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. 
if you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing, and I think this is a perfect example of it. PLF's lawsuit takes issue with the pandemic's just the pandemic-based justification for debt relief, noting that the harms purportedly ameliorated with debt forgiveness are not quote a direct result of the quote national emergency as required by the Heroes Act. To the extent the statute can arguably justify the cancellation, the major questions doctrine requires a clear authorization by Congress of such an economically and politically significant action, which is lacking here. That's from the lawsuit. Loan forgiveness is set to kick in, by the way, sometime next month. So we'll see. So there it is, Brianna. Uh, here is the lawsuit that could potentially uh, derail the student loan forgiveness. Uh, you know, we've talked about the actual legal argument, and you know, I think you have conceded that the kind of pandemic justification is maybe not the strongest um, case for no, doing this. No, it's not the strongest. But part of the argument that I made then is that it wasn't and still isn't too late for them to simply mm -hmm. use the other authority. So there's two things here. One, what this gentleman that you're referencing here is arguing is as, as a case for standing. Yeah. So their claims are so tenuous that it, the, the biggest hurdle many people thought that they might face is even having someone with a, a claim that can be adjudicated in this context, a claim that is proximate enough to the harm that they can even have standing here as opposed to people like Ted Cruz who just don't like the policy right. because they... Right just don't like it. Well, so what do you make of this very creative standing argument? So I think for one, because we actually don't have language yet, the same reasons that I think Biden should just use the, uh, the 1965 uh, uh, Education Act instead of the HEROES Act, he could, he could make that switch and he could easily create uh, an out that would allow people to opt out of this program, thus ending this person's efforts. It seems to me, I'm not you know, a legal expert on this particular area, but we're all talking about a policy that hasn't been enacted yet. And so when I was speaking to uh, Florida Pro Professor Jed Sugarman on my show about this, the point that he was making is that any claims would have to wait until there's actually you know, action on these kinds of policies. And until that time, they, I think there's ample opportunity for uh, Joe Biden to make this as fair as possible to, for people. So if this person is going to be disadvantaged by uh, the tax implications of this policy, I think that's a bad thing. And I'm looking forward to Joe Biden taking this opportunity for him to actually remedy that that behavior. Mm -hmm. Now, what we know is going on here is not that this person is actually having a qualm about their taxes. It's about a broader effort to use a fringe case to try to take down a policy that is going to help 44 million Americans who are middle class and low income people who are too poor to pay to go to college. So I hope this guy brings some cookies to work or has some really good water cooler conversation because he's going to have a lot of co-workers here. He does public interest work. He's taking advantage of a, of a government program to make it easier for him to pay his loans off. And there are a lot of people in his cohort who I'm sure would be, be very much advantaged by Biden's student debt policy. So I hope he's a real charmer because he might not be making a lot of well, friends at work right think, now. Well, he, now he works for Pacific <laughs> Legal Foundation, which is the mm -hmm. place. So they they agree, you know, ideologically with trying to prevent this. Uh, I mean, I think he would say, I don't know. I think he would say that the loan forgiveness program he is using was authorized by Congress, is subject to democratic decision making. Is you know, the, the lawmakers are accountable to the people, so that's fine. What what Biden just declared without suddenly without 
uh, any uh, input from uh, from the normal lawmaking rulemaking process is not how the Constitution thinks our government should function. It's not for just the executive to declare laws and Congress to be Congress to be the pontification branch and the executive to be the sole you know, lawmaking all the functions of the executive and the and the legislative role. That's not what how our how our yeah, system is supposed I to totally work. agree. And I, I wish that Republicans would come forward with a with a with I a policy, too. any policy at all, to address this crisis that's affecting tens of millions of Americans. Regretfully, they aren't. George Bush is the, is the person under whom the public loan interest uh, policy was enacted, and Democrats were able to join that on a bipartisan base, basis to do something good for the country. Unfortunately, Republicans are in a place where they are unwilling to vote for anything. They're really unwilling to support a child tax credit that halved uh, child poverty. They're unwilling to vote for any of the COVID relief reforms that came down uh, the transom over the past two years that kept the economy going and enabled America to keep uh, on the on the straight and narrow. And so, you know, we, unfortunately, because of the bipartisan, uh, the failure of bipartisanship and the real rancor coming out of the right and antipathy that they seem to have for student borrowers as a whole. I mean, you heard what Ted Cruz said about, you know, baristas and, and, and um, uh, basket weavers or whatever uh, being the the, 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 the central actors and the central beneficiaries of these kinds of programs, and we know that couldn't be further from the truth. They talk with complete and total contempt for the student borrower population. So unfortunately, we're not going to have a bipartisan effort on this. I would like to see it. And fortunately, there happens to be good legal authority for the president to act with executive authority on issues of extreme education emergencies, which of course we were in because of a crisis that has been created, in part because of people like Joe Biden. So he can do this. He should do this, and I look forward to any tweaks that have to happen to the plan, as flagged by um, good reporting like yours. As a, a crisis created by the stu the the, bar the loaning program, I mean, let's have Democrats put forward a plan again. If, if the well, way we well, talk one independent about senator from Vermont certainly has put to get put yeah. forward a plan, and it's right there for everyone to vote on. So if you are a conservative that really hopes for the the root causes of the student loan crisis to be addressed, you should encourage your representatives to go ahead and vote for Bernie's plan to make public colleges and universities tuition free I think and the, get rid of this federal loan program that's yes. really helped raise the cost of colleges. Well, and I think the income-derived uh, income repayment is a good idea or a, a, a healthier way to pay for college than this, but not still with the middleman of the loans. Just make it generally true that you pay to the college some percentage of your income after you graduate for some period of time. I would be fine with that. I think that makes perfect sense, but right now, you're going to be repay a loan that way. So it's, it's, it, we're adding an extra step that just makes it so the, the institution will raise tuition, will get, will confiscate, will take all the loan money, and then you're paying your, you know, your income back to the taxpayer. It won't be nearly as much as the loan was. Yeah, I, I see it's what you're bad, saying. I agree, but bad, I mean, the reality is that colleges are unlikely to agree to that because under the current model. Well, they are even, because they have the loan program right now. We'll right. get rid of that and then we'll let them fend for themselves. Right. I mean, I think that the, the fundamental issue, if you value colleges and you value people's ability to get an education and you value having an educated workforce and, and country, is to have free, accessible colleges for all, not for us to just kind of, you know, ruefully root for the destruction of the college system. Now, there's certainly colleges that I have no affinity for who have enormous endowments and don't use those endowments to support right. their students. I think it's unconscionable, frankly, that I have friends from uh, Harvard who 
came from inner city neighborhoods, went back and became teachers in their schools, and Harvard is asking them to pay $40,000 a year for undergraduate uh, tuition when they have, you know, hundreds of millions, maybe more, in their endowment. And we're um, subsidizing them. Right. Through the loan program. <laughs> right. Um, at the same time, I wish we did live in a world, I don't think it's, it's right to say, let's have a policy structured as an attack on the education system, an attack on the education system, which people like Ronald Reagan spearheaded in the 1980s after there was integration at these schools and it was explicitly understood and explicitly said by so many conservatives that these schools have people whose politics we don't like. So we want to censor them and shut down their ability to, to, to come together on these education campuses and camp, uh, educational uh, opportunities to defund the, the University of California system for that explicit political purpose. So I think we have to do both things. We have to support public colleges and universities so we can have true free freedom of speech and expression well, at the uh, same time that we unwind some of the perverse financial incentives that have been set unwind up. Unwind the perverse financial incentives. I don't agree with you that it should be free, but it should certainly be affordable. It used to be affordable, and then we have all these policies that have made it absolutely unaffordable and you know, uh, immiserate people by trapping them in, in debt. Let's have policies that go back to where it was, where if you, if you wanted the college degree, you could pay for it. It was possible to, to pay your way through it. Should and primary you school the, be, be free, in your opinion, Robbie? Primary school should be free, yes. And what distinction do you make between tw 12th grade being free uh, and freshman year being free? If we, the more credentialing we do, the more there's no then benefit. There's no benefit that you can get by doing it over everyone else. It's just an extra hoop we add to society before you can work. It's actually destroying productivity by making it so it cheapens the degree. I think that was a really honest thing that you just said, and I think that's a problem that we understand that college attainment is a way to keep a, a kind of a class hierarchy where some people or more or better and more qualified and get more opportunities than other folks. And yes, it cheapens a college degree if everyone can have one. That's a problem. Then it will be I a think, graduate degree. I then it will be a PhD. Then it will be people will be 50 years old still getting the next edu still getting the next certificate as long as we keep subsidizing it or making it free. No, there will be think, no end to I, it. I think that you have to go to college to get certain jobs. You have to go to college to be a doctor. You have to be, go to college to be a teacher. And that those kind of jobs should be You have be to go accessible. to college to be a teacher? Yes. And that those kind of jobs should be accessible to all. Yeah, I think there's a lot of jobs you don't need to go to college for, and we're making it so that you do have to go to college for all jobs because we've subsidized it. No, <laughs> Robbie, you can't make it. You you can't you can't play those kinds of games. If you don't have to go to college for a job, don't go to college for a job. But also, don't sit here and pretend that vocational school doesn't cost money. That people don't have barriers to doing that too. All of those things should be free. When we're talking about free higher education, it is also vocational schools. It's community colleges. This isn't a class issue unless you maintain that only some people should have access to the next stepping stone to do any profession that they want to do. It cannot be the case that only rich people have an ability to go to college and access Not the kinds only of jobs. People, but often afford people. the greatest remuneration. It used to be the case not only only it was not only rich people who go to who go to college. You could pay your way and you could make it work. And we should go back to that. That was great because the primary beneficiary of the so college degree affordable? is the person themselves. What, what's affordable? What's the maximum price that you see college? Should, you anticipate college should cost. Well, it should be, it should be the, again, the way it was, I mean, keeping up with inflation, you should be able to, if well, you work a job or if you work nice. the way it was a lot of nice. were free or close to being free, nominal costs for some books and things like that. So if that's what you're saying, then we're in agreement. But if there is some performative way that you think that a college is still cost $12,000 a year instead of $60,000 a year or something like that. That's a big we difference. Have to, 
That is a big difference, but unfortunately, we live in a country where a lot, where 40% of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency, much less $12,000 a year in tuition. Well, <laughs> all right. Here we had we had uh, we had the debate again, and uh, we'll have more rising right after this. We have some breaking news on the Stock Act, which would be the bill to limit the extent to which political actors, congressmen, judges, etc., can play the stock game. Uh, the, are, there are details of what the bill would look like available by Punchbowl News, but the, I think the headline here is it's unlikely that it would ever even come to a vote because, according to this news report, a number of rank-and-file Democrats are, quote, actively opposed, <laughs> according to the source. And then, of course, uh, the, the Republicans are regrettably almost universally opposed as well. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> well, what do you know it? Uh, a political figures, who says bipartisanship <laughs> right. is dead, happy to come together to thwart efforts to prevent them from uh, profiting off the knowledge they have. Yeah, like this is perhaps a little unsurprising given that, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi had that famous moment um, when she was asked about this last year and she said, no, 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 uh, Congress members shouldn't be banned from owning individual stocks because we are, quote, a free market economy. She's obviously someone with enormous wealth who has been accused, her husband has been accused of making uh, stock trades based on insider information that she is obviously privy to as the highest ranking <laughs> Democrat in the House. And it's extraordinary that they can publicly crow about how the Democratic Party is against corruption and we're going to pass this act. We have control of the House and the Senate and the, and the White House, and we are going to pass an act that prevents Congress members from trading on insider information and then not even be able to marshal the votes to pass it after kind of finally making the admission that this is a real problem. Yeah. It's disgusting. But we never really believed them that they were actually going to do this, that they cared. Um, hilariously, I'm sure if you polled the average American, this would poll so well. You would get, you would get like virtually all Democrats, Republicans, independents, conservatives, liberal, the left, everyone would say, the, centrists, everyone is going to say, unless you're maybe a stockbroker or something, <laughs> everyone's going to say, this is, this is an easy thing to take this power away. Yeah. So the bill, uh, if it did get voted on, it, it's not going to, but it would be pretty expansive. It would apply to members of Congress, their spouses, also their children, senior aides, federal judges, including the Supreme Court, and senior executive branch officials. That was what the bill was purporting Which, to do. Which, by the way, everyone else has to do. If you work for a bank, if you work for a law firm, if you are privy to this kind of information, you are already precluded from doing exactly this. Truly in the world of kind of broad corporate government access, Congress is the standout actor <laughs> who doesn't have to play by the same kind of rules as we completely understand need to be in, in place so that, you know, the, the president of J.P. Morgan or whatever that's marshalling some merger doesn't make out like right. a king from the from the, the very merger that he is planning. They're they are privy to this similar so, kind of so a senator doesn't walk out of a meeting about... Uh, what, what's going to happen with COVID before COVID is big news right. and immediately go and sell off stocks or buy stocks in Pfizer, right. whatever, which is exactly what exactly happened. What happened. senator did do that. So this was <laughs> Senator Burr in early yes. 2020. Unsealed FBI docs revealed a flurry of calls and stock trades by him um, right before the coronavirus. You know, we were yes. all notified broadly of, of the scale and scope of the, of the COVID before virus. Telling, before you tell your constituents, of the crisis, of the deadly disease that is about to tear across this country, killing hundreds of thousands of people, 
your first call is to, your to, to get your stocks <laughs> in order. Yeah, it's really unconscionable. I'd love to see how Democrats defend this. I hope this is a story that uh, circulates more broadly because this is a moment for the actual progressives in Congress to shine and the principled conservatives, by the way, that are genuine populists to shine and call out corrupt leadership that is more invested in their stock por portfolio than decoupling themselves from the, the from um, having their personal interests interfere with the interests of the American people because that's really the problem here. On one level, yes, we don't want people enriching themselves based on insider information, but the more central problem here is the risk that because one policy or another, one law or another may personally benefit yeah. various elected officials, that they are going to start making decisions in their own personal interests as opposed to the right. interests of the people who elected them. Yeah, I, this would be an even bigger problem if Congress was doing more of its job of legislating, but uh, <laughs> the, the legislative function of Congress has been so passed off to agencies and uh, and the executive, although they also have, uh, some you know, senior yeah. uh, officials would also be uh, covered by this. I mean, Judges would be covered by this. They're the ones doing all the lawmaking these days. Yeah, as well they should, as well they should be. Not that they should be doing the lawmaking, right. but they should be covered by, by this. Right. Imagine if Congress was actually the one responsible for, like, imagine the pharmaceutical industry's input on public policy. If Congress, rather than just the president, was actually the one responsible for, <laughs> like, vaccine mandates or something, you could see how a congressperson who has stock in Pfizer yes. uh, might might vote uh, differently on that or against the you know wishes of constituents or yes. something like that. And that's a really good point. Someone raises to me on my call-in show last night how the fact of even even if there isn't particular corruption in a given instance the possibility of corruption, the fact that we all know that it exists, the fact that we know how much lobbying happens with respect to the pharmaceutical industry has really contributed to the climate of mistrust around things like vaccines and policies in the CDC. So some of it is their actual bad behavior. And some of it is the imprimatur of corruption that comes with having systems that are so easily infiltrated. And that, that, that ambiguity, I, I mean, I feel that, you know, is you know, the Biden administration really advising a booster campaign over, you know, once a year for the rest of your life because that's the, what's medically indicated? Is it because that's something that is advantageous for pharmaceutical right. companies? You know, both can be true. It can be the right thing to do and, you know, profitable for a pharmaceutical company. But when we have a country where that profit and that corruption is underlying every single thing, it makes people, I think, rightly skeptical of what they can and cannot trust. Absolutely. Which, of course, I'm going to flip into an argument for Medicare for all and getting the profit motive completely out of our health care, but can be, you know, understood as a problem, even if that's not your political bag. Well, I think we're going to talk about boosters and COVID next. So we'll take a brief pause and we'll come back with more rising in just a minute. Pfizer wants the Food and Drug Administration to authorize the Omicron booster shot for kids ages 5 to 11. The company submitted an application to the FDA seeking the authorization of its bivalent COVID booster shot for children in this age category. According to The Hill, Pfizer's bivalent boosters currently only authorized for use in those 12 and older. Now, per the report, this request comes only days after Moderna requested FDA authorization to administer its updated Omicron booster to children as young as six. 
NBC reports at least 4.4 million people have received an updated COVID booster since the start of September, according to data released last week by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That number represents only around 1.5% of people currently eligible to receive the shots in the United States. However, the CDC said the data does not include people who received updated Pfizer-BioNTech boosters in Idaho in Texas. So it's interesting, right? You know, there is a, an effort to make the boosters more accessible, and certainly there are people who probably have children in the groups for which the booster is not currently authorized who want to get that. However, the numbers of people overall who seem to be availing themselves of the booster is relatively low. And I'm curious whether or not this is an indictment of kind of the Biden administration's messaging around the efficacy of boosters or whether it's a scientifically backed and sincere understanding of the limited application of boosters for a lot of folks who have already gotten COVID, had COVID recently, and in fact, maybe recommended against getting boosters because they have had COVID so recently. Right, because it's too recent to their uh, protection. That's why I initially didn't get uh, the booster because I'd had COVID, I'd had Delta about, um, you know, four or five months after getting my, my initial shots. So then I put off uh, getting a booster. I am, I am going to get one. Um, tonight, I'm getting the bivalent shot. Um, a lot of people ask, a lot of people, uh, comments, people have messaged me saying, you know, what is your, because uh, I, I said on the show yesterday mm-hmm. that I was going to get it. And uh, I saw a lot of like RIP Robbie, the <laughs> die of myocarditis. Um, but look, I, I think for myself, I'm prone to respiratory um, illnesses. I've, you've seen me this summer. I've been, I've been ill a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I, I absolutely agree and understand with things, uh, things that people we've had on the show have said, like David's wife saying that, you know, if you look, you're not seeing in the data a a, a tremendous benefit here, uh, nor really a tremendous harm, though. Uh, I don't expect that it is going to make me any less likely to contract um, Omicron, and maybe it's not going to have much of an effect, but I don't see really, I don't think there's really a risk of it for me. So if there's even a small chance that when I do get Omicron, I will be a little less sick than Mm -hmm. I would be otherwise, I feel like I I will make that choice, given that I I have to... (laughs) show up to this job every single day. I got to sit in this chair next to you. Um, we got to power through it when we're not feeling well. Really, my priority is to is to be sick for the shortest amount of time. Again, may, I'm not I, I am not saying that this absolutely accomplishes that, but uh, I would I would I would take that chance in the same way that I'll get the flu shot. Uh, I'm getting the flu shot as well. Hero stuff, do. Robbie. So I, I for one, appreciate thinking. the solidarity. It's really for you, Brian. It's really for you. <laughs> I, it's the best All gift I you could have ever given, <laughs> given me, Robbie. But look, it is a really interesting thing because I was talking to some folks uh, who had called into my call-in show last night who were uh, healthcare professionals, and they they were. It was an interesting conversation because, from their perspective, you know, they see the shifts. Again, you know, away from masking, voluntary masking, even among people who might have philosophically supported a mask mandate themselves are eating inside, you know, there's less cultural pressure to mask. I feel it myself. Eating inside though, the audacity. No, I mean, <laughs> but no, I, I know. You I, know, I like it, the, yeah. the, the inconsistency yeah. of having eating, eating inside has made people think, well, if I just sat in this restaurant, then why would I mask later in an Uber or an elevator or wherever else? And I think that that is both you know, understandable and also not necessarily scientifically valid. You know, if you did just eat in a restaurant, maybe it is good for you to be masking in a space in an in in enclosed public space with someone else who has been taking different kinds of precautions or also just because you 
you know, made, took a risk in one place doesn't mean you should just serialize that risk as though that they don't accumulate over time. Your exposure doesn't accumulate over number of risk-taking behaviors you engage in. But what he was saying was, what two of them were saying was, they are seeing rising rates of COVID in the hospitals and rising rates of people who, they, one person in particular said that the, their experience of Omicron wasn't that it was less uh, fatal, less lethal, that they were seeing a lot of really um, dramatic cases even now. And the, I, was, I was reflecting on how so much of the rhetoric earlier in the pandemic was about, well, okay, even if, even if you don't care about getting COVID, you don't want to get so sick that you are burdening our healthcare professionals. Sure. And so much of that rhetoric has largely dissipated. And I wonder, you know, what you make of that. And if, if we really did see a demonstration of hospitalizations rising in a way that was clearly putting a damper on our, our, our public health system, whether that would affect your feelings about whether or not masking were, was appropriate outside of the context of a literal mask mandate. Sure. Well, I, that was the argument that persuaded me for the for the initial shutdown of yeah. everything. The health officials said, you know what, we are just not prepared for this, and we're uh, our hospitals are about to become overwhelmed. Yeah. And you know, once we have something in place to deal with this, um, th then it'll be different. Uh, so it was really the preventing of hospitals from being overwhelmed, from having to do triage care, where yeah. you're making where doctors are making like split second decisions about who is is worth saving. That was the argument. That actually, even even more than you know, people are going to die because yeah. obviously we weren't going to do this. For, people were going to die of this. It was uh, not preventable. Uh, the the hospitals being overcrowded was the argument for having a broad uh, temporary shutdown of society. So yes, I, I think uh, I, I think certainly hospitals being overrun is you know a, a good argument, a good indication of the pandemic not being over. Now my understanding, however, though, is that in most places, the overwhelming amount of places, the hospitals are not being overrun. There, some, some places, when they're, they're experiencing more serious outbreaks, are experiencing upticks in cases uh, what do you of, make in of the like hospital. But things like high nurse not. turnover, uh, the, the nursing deficits that we've seen, they're struggling to get people to seemingly to stay in these jobs, and they cite the conditions that they're in. I mean, what well, do you make of that? Is that, a, is that a COVID thing, though? Is that that's burnout from dealing with COVID patients? I think from... that that's a big part of it. Now, I would certainly advocate for nurses to have broader support, right. even outside of the context of COVID. They were overburdened and, and uh, understaffed and things like that. But in their telling, the COVID pandemic, the lack of support, the incredible hours, the lack of pay, it has, has taken I also think we're, we're see, we now see a lot of people, um, because... Omicron is so contagious and so transmissible. You do, and I, 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 I'm not trying to say it doesn't cause severe disease sometimes because it does, but we do see more people who are being who are hospitalized for some reason, and then it turns out that they have COVID because it's so much sure. more likely to just have COVID, where it's not really the primary reason for them. Sure, that it's, it's incidental to them. Yeah. Uh, also, we want to discuss some interesting data. So there's new data now showing that infants ages between zero and five months have joined a, a relatively higher risk category for COVID-related hospitalization. So you can see this interesting graph here over time. Um, so the, t the very top, the green line, is the most at-risk people. That's 65 and older. But, but by the end of the graph, um, the, the zero to six months group is, is in the third most category. So they're, they're more at risk, more likely to be hospitalized than people, I, I believe, like ages one to 50. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then people older than that are still, are still more at risk. If you look at some of the other graphs, part of it is that the risk for 
uh, for the elderly has come down substantially. Mm, so it can look like, as that risk shrinks, it gets more proximate to the risk for all other groups. Mm -hmm. because, and it, but it, it's still a good thing because it's just an equally low risk. Mm -hmm. But among that lower risk, now there, there have been, which I imagine is a couple standout cases. I, I really don't, don't know what's going on there. Um, mm -hmm. It'd be important to take a closer look at it because that would be scary. You know, obviously that's people's yeah. babies. That's, um, yeah. that's, uh, that's a group that um, can't get vaccinated. Right. I, I don't think under any vaccine uh, paradigm. Um, so, so definitely something, something to look out for. Yeah. Well, we will be keeping an eye on that and other emerging COVID trends. Uh, and tomorrow on Rising, we'll have even more incredible content for you. <laughs> be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of it. And for those who like to listen on the go, we're now available anywhere that you consume podcast and podcast-related content. And we will see you all back here tomorrow. Again, unless I, <laughs> unless the, the vaccine takes me out, <laughs> then uh, everyone, everyone can say they were right. We'll Don't see. even put that out into the ether, Robbie. You'll be fine. <laughs> see you. Well, Brianna, what's on your radar? Robbie, what might be the biggest welfare fraud of the decade just got worse. As we've covered here on Rising, NFL quarterback Brett Favre took $5 million allotted for needy families for speeches he never gave and to build a volleyball stadium at his daughter's college. Now there is new breaking news. Two years after scamming Mississippi's poor out of money they needed to survive, Favre tried to get additional money from the state's welfare agency for a new football facility, the Clarion Ledger reports. Now, as a brief recap, this scandal is part of a larger fraud and embezzlement scheme in which $77 million were stolen from poor families. And it's the biggest public fraud case in Mississippi history. Because of a Clinton-era policy, federal money distributed under the welfare program known as TANF, or Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, could be distributed as block grants to states instead of being distributed on the basis of need. Now, the rationale was that block grants allow states more flexibility in how they use federal money. But this scandal reveals exactly why that can be a problem. Block grants allow states to shift the federal funds to other purposes. And as we learned earlier this month in Mississippi, those purposes included millions of dollars for Brett Favre's pet projects. Now, Favre's claim that he did not realize the funds he got came from the poorest people in America's poorest state might have been reasonable at first blush. As a sport philosophy professor at George Washington University pointed out in the New York Times, it's not uncommon for individuals to secure grants without knowing exactly where the money is coming from. But text messages that came out earlier this month blew up that lie. In the text between Favre and the director of a community education nonprofit, uh, Favre asked, quote, if you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much? The director, Nancy New, confirmed that she had, quote, just gotten off the phone with Phil Bryant, Mississippi's then governor, and that Bryant was, quote, on board with us. Now, neither Bryant nor Favre have been criminally charged, and Favre has repaid $1 million he was given for speaking fees, minus nearly a quarter million dollars in interest still outstanding. But wait, there's more. Favre had told a local paper that he had not discussed building a volleyball facility with former Governor Bryant. But new texts show that during September of 2019, 
Favre texted Governor Bryant, pressing him for money to pay for the facility. Quote, we obviously need your help big time, and time is working against us, and we feel that your name is the perfect choice for this facility, and we are not taking no for an answer, exclamation point. Governor Bryant responded, this was a great meeting, but we have to follow the law. I'm too old for federal prison. Ah, <laughs> such restraint. <laughs> Moreover, back in 2017, the year Brett's daughter started at the University of Southern Mississippi, Favre texted Governor Bryant, quote, obviously Southern has no money, so I'm hustling to get it raised. A few hours later, he texted, of course, I am all in on the volleyball facility. One thing I know how to do is raise money. Apparently. But wait, it gets worse. Former WWE wrestler Ted Teddy DeBiase Jr. has alleged that Phil Bryant redirected welfare funds away from a nonprofit that needed it to help the poor because, quote, the nonprofit director was a supporter of the Democratic candidate for governor that year. An action that, of course, benefited the current Republican governor, Tate Reeves. This was reported on yesterday's episode of the New Abnormal podcast over at the Daily Beast. But wait, there's more. According to 2018 text, Brett Favre reportedly suggested using prison labor to build the volleyball facility for his daughter's school. Look, to be clear, these are federal dollars that the governor's office has the sole discretion to disperse. It doesn't go through the state legislature. Blame cannot be dispersed. And the governor's office chose to give millions of dollars to fund an already multimillionaire man's whims. So let's take a look. What, was, uh, what else was going on in Mississippi at the time? Well, at the time of the scandal, the cash checks available to the poor in Mississippi hadn't increased in decades. Poor families could get a mere $170 a month for a family of three. Meanwhile, 99% of people who applied for that meager cash welfare benefit were denied assistance altogether. By contrast, Brett Favre's net worth is over $100 million. It's important not to skip over who this hurt. For example, the most common cause for family separation is neglect. And neglect is often a crime of poverty. 75% of children flagged by the system are not abused. Their families are just too poor to take care of them properly. So imagine you are a family whose children were put into the foster care system due to neglect who could have really used that $170 check to feed your family or keep a roof over your head? Oh well, at least a millionaire's daughter has a new volleyball facility. Mississippi is currently going through a water crisis, as we've covered here on Rising. Two days ago, the Department of Justice said the water was not safe, and in fact said it was prepared to file an action against the city of Jackson under the Safe Drinking Water Act. Residents of Jackson have lacked access to safe and reliable water for decades the capital city of a state in the richest country in the world. And in that context, the state's former governor was handing out freebies to millionaires. And the current governor, I'm afraid he's hardly off the hook. Local reporter Anna Wolf has pointed out that it's a conflict of interest for Governor Tate Reeves to be in charge of the embezzlement lawsuit that has implicated Brett Favre. She says he should in fact be a target of it. 
The former welfare director, John Davis, who is facing criminal charges in this scandal, said he was doing Governor Reeves' bidding when he funneled over a million dollars to Reeves' fitness trainer, a defendant in the lawsuit. Governor Reeves also recently fired the attorney who had brought the welfare suit in the first instance after he attempted to subpoena the University of Southern Mississippi Athletic Foundation for its communications with, among others, Governor Bryant. Communications which we now know are pretty incriminating. This is after Reeves' staff had forced the U.S. attorney to remove the Athletic Foundation from the lawsuit before he filed it. It won't surprise you to learn that the Athletic Foundation board is made up of Reeves supporters and campaign donors. Meanwhile, while residents of his capital are unable to get basic services available in much poorer countries in the global south, Reeves has withheld Jackson water repair funds, claiming fiscal conservatism, according to recent reporting. While Reeves has blamed Jackson's water issue on city mismanagement, he has for years bowed to political pressure to abandon the residents of Jackson, who were cast as undeserving takers in all of this. In 2011, while engaged in a battle for the lieutenant governor's seat, Reeves was pressured by the ongoing Tea Party movement to explain why he had approved money for bond projects as a member of the state bond commission. Reeves, courting Tea Party support, told the truth when asked. He explained that he wasn't approving every bond project. There were many that didn't even get to the approval stage because he simply didn't take up issues he didn't want to approve for a vote. Among the bonds Jackson had required, a bond to repair its crumbling water and sewer infrastructure. While some funding made it through, typically money funded by a sales tax on Jackson's poor residents as opposed to state funds, this is a pattern we see repeatedly across the country. Politicians use their positions for self-enrichment, sacrificing poor and working people of all races and backgrounds in the process. The conservative Tea Party actors that wanted Reeves to cut government funds didn't, in fact, end up advancing populist interests. At the end of the day, corrupt politicians too often are encouraged by right-wing movements to withdraw what limited ex support exists for working people and poor people, while real government waste, corruption, is ignored. Now, I'm not interested in beating up on these governors for being Republican or conservative, but I am interested in asking conservative populist voters to take a good hard look at how arguments for fiscal responsibility often mean fiscal responsibility for the poor and giveaways for the rich. Just look at how Trump's tax cuts went overwhelmingly to the 1% or how elites were as silent about PPP funds going to the very rich as they were loud about student debt cancellation or how quickly both parties shut down the child tax credit that had halved child poverty. Real populism focuses on the needs of the people, food, water, shelter, education. These are the primary functions of government on which businesses can be built and societies can thrive. Whatever you think about a transports policy or the 1619 project, that's not populism. It's identity politics. Many politicians on both sides of the aisle are hoping you vote based on a woke or anti-woke identity rather than on a candidate's ability to improve your material condition. That is your ability to thrive financially. 
As a left populist, I have no hesitation in calling out Democrats like Clinton for reforming welfare so that it can be exploited the way Mississippi's leaders exploited it, or calling out figures like Pelosi for resisting common sense laws that would ban her from using insider knowledge in the stock market, enriching herself with information she's supposed to be using to serve the public interest. All I ask is whether you'll do the same when conservative leadership advocates for fiscal responsibility for the poor while they bend the rules for elites like Brett Favre. But can you find an example of a Republican or conservative or you know a, a, a limited government intellectual voice who is not who is not outraged about the Brett Favre situation? I, I mean, I think that's clear crime and fraud and 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 bad and you know really bad we talked about it well, I, I condemn it I, yeah this this I just don't think I think you wouldn't find anyone who wouldn't condemn it well the question isn't whether or not you'll condemn Brett Favre it's whether or not you'll take a step back and see it as part of this broader scheme a bipartisan scheme to increasingly divert public funds in ways that can be used to enrich elected officials and that this is a really important part of the I think the, that was a chief complaint the, of the Tea Party movement was the exact thing you just said. Right, which is what I'm pointing out here. The yeah. irony of this movement, I think on some level, wanting to be a populist movement, some of it was astroturfy, but some, there were some real people who wanted real populism to keep more rights to be turned to the people, more, more. The idea was that if by cutting entitlement, so-called entitlement programs, they would be able to keep more tax dollars in their pocket and their lives would improve. The reality is the same people who are walking around pandering to this idea of fiscal responsibility are in fact using their position to enrich themselves and further corruption. And I hope that there's some accountability here and some real consideration about whether or not some of the rhetoric that comes out of movements that purport to be populist is exploited by politicians in this very way. And I think there's frankly a lot of gains to be had between populists on the left and populists on the right who are similarly invested in ending corruption, similarly invested in stripping power away from elites to do exactly these kinds of things, to advance policies that attack those human beings, those corrupt uh, parties, instead of putting so much focus on stripping entitlement programs that are supposed to benefit the very poorest and most vulnerable among us. All right. I, I agree, I guess, then, that focusing on uh, getting rid of like all entitlements or all welfare can seem misplaced, if, if that's your point, can seem misplaced when there's so much fraud of this kind. Um, but, I mean, frankly, getting this specific kind of fraud, the, the, uh, the stadium subsidies is something perverse that happens everywhere Absolutely. That, that really does get complained about a lot by, you know, what you re would refer to as Tea Party. I mean, I, I, I guess I don't know what Tea Party activists do these days. Maybe it's just I'm all sure pro-Trump to the extent it exists. But, uh, you know, conservative think tanks, state-based think tanks, every state has a, has a libertarian, conservative, you know, low-tax, low-regulation think tank that routinely complains about stadium subsidies or subsidies for the you know, film industries that states I always think it's a great idea. Let's let's give all these tax breaks to films, to to uh, to Hollywood, to start doing films here, and then like we're going to create a whole film industry. And then they move there to do one movie because they're like literally being paid by the taxpayers of the state. Yeah. And then a different state will come up with an even more obscenely generous pro program. Yeah. It's a race it to the bottom. It's, it's so stupid. It's a race to the bottom. Look, there was a, a book written um, by. Uh, 
sociologist, I guess you'd say, Heather McGee, about something. She, she calls it drained pool politics. And it's a, this idea that politicians, politicians over history have been able to whip up uh, antagonism against certain groups to justify cutting social programs that actually hurt the people in the group that votes for them, right? So we saw this a lot um, after integration uh, orders came down across the South. A lot of these cities were so robust, they had swimming pools and wonderful public parks and a lot of public facilities that instead of allowing to integrate, many people decided just to shut them down. And she calls it drain pool politics because so many, the, the public pool used to be a real centerpiece of American life. And so many of them were filled in in the post-integration era because people would rather not have that public benefit than share it with black people. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously a kind of extreme example, but there are lots of ways in which I think um, poor people of Or we really got into skateboarding. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, I take your point. It's, uh... Yeah, we, we just have to be clear-eyed about whether or not, you know, hopping on some kind of uh, trend, something that can sincerely irritate you. I'm not telling you how to feel about trans women in sports or 16 nights or anything like that, but just be careful that we're not prioritizing things that don't actually affect our lives most viscerally, most materially, most financially in favor of some frolic and detour on the internet that we're all going to forget about in a few years. All right. Well, the, the fireworks have to wait for yet another segment. <laughs> we're, uh, we're all getting along today. We'll have more rising right after this. Well, the Texas gubernatorial election is heating up, and we have some brand new polling that shows Republican Governor Greg Abbott with 50% of the vote, an eight-point lead over Democratic challenger Beto O'Rourke's 42%. This is according to a survey conducted by Emerson College and The Hill. Regardless of which candidate they support, 63% of the respondents expect that Abbott will easily win the election, as do I. Just yesterday, Texans for Abbott released this campaign ad, doubling down on Abbott's pledge to keep Texas safe. There's a clear and present danger in neighborhoods like this. It's deadly fentanyl, and it's killing our kids. How's it getting here? Right here, through our border. This year alone, law enforcement has seized enough fentanyl in Texas to kill millions. But Beto O'Rourke supports open borders. He says there isn't a problem at our border. Not a problem? Drug cartels, human traffickers, the most dangerous border in the world. Beto O'Rourke, too radical, too dangerous for Texas. This comes after Abbott's recent executive order that designates cartels as terrorist organizations. Texas correspondent for USA Today Network in Austin, John Moritz, joins us now to discuss the race. Welcome to the show, John. Glad to be here. Help us understand a little bit what's happening here, because, you know, the beginning of the story with Beto O'Rourke many years ago was that he was a kind of a, a phenom that had an unprecedented ability potentially to capture a state that has historically not been kind to Democratic candidates. You know, do you think that something has changed between then and now in terms of this narrative or that the narrative was just uh, not based in reality to begin with? Well, uh, Beto was very much now a known commodity in Texas, and that means the people who know him and like him know him and like him more. Conversely, the people who know him and do not like him are starting to basically cement that feeling in. Um, uh, four years ago, when he ran against Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz was a very polarizing figure in Texas and around the nation. And that got Beto O'Rourke a lot of attention and a lot of money. Uh, Governor Abbott is not quite so polarizing. So there's a, a little bit different dynamic in this race compared to when Beto first uh, uh, vaulted onto the scene. 
That's very interesting because obviously Governor Abbott is uh, raising his kind of national profile uh, with the you know the uh, the movements of uh, migrants to other states, uh, weighing in on immigration issues, that kind of thing, in, in a way that uh, is probably very pleasing to uh, to many conservatives. But I you know could I in theory at least make him a more polarizing figure among um, uh, people who are not in, inside the you know the very solid solid uh, Republican uh, base. But uh, I understand. But Texas obviously is a you know a, a right leaning state, so maybe still that's that's to his benefit. Yeah, the um, the the polling that I've seen shows that uh, even among Democrats, there's a, a Democrats there's a slight uh, support for uh, the, the governor's policies, and among Republicans, there's all the overwhelming support mm-hmm. for the uh, uh, the governor's policies on the Texas border. Well, speaking of those poll numbers, we want to zero in on some interesting findings from this poll. While Abbott's tough on immigration and cartel policies seem to have garnered him a slight majority of the Latino vote with a 46 percent lead compared to O'Rourke's 42 percent, black voters back Beto's 78 percent to Abbott's 12 percent. Meanwhile, 60 percent of white voters in the state prefer Abbott, while just 35 percent support O'Rourke. What do you make of the difference between uh, Latinos and black Americans uh, with respect to their uh, how, how their preference for, for O'Rourke? Is it about different um, attitudes toward crime and immigration? And do you have any insight into what's behind some of those numbers? Well, basically, the Latino vote in Texas is not monolithic. On the border, where a lot of attention is being paid, um, the, the Latino population averages a little bit more conservative um, and a little bit more conscious of the issues uh, down there. In, in more urban areas like Houston, San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, um, the Latino vote is, uh, tends to be far more progressive than it does on the border. Um, but those numbers uh, are, are probably quite pleasing to the governor and troublesome to um, the O'Rourke campaign. Uh, the governor's uh, campaign has made no secret of the fact that it wants to win the Latino vote this cycle. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. We talk a lot on the show. We've had several guests, um, some some who are Latino Republicans, you know, trying to uh, diagnose or explain uh, this phenomenon. Do you, do you think it was maybe? I think I think part of the issue. So I'm curious for your take was just maybe an overconfidence on the part of Democrats for a long time that the Latino vote would be monolithic and would be would be theirs, and uh, they wouldn't have to do much more than that, but just expect you know demographics over time to provide to provide that. Bump. If anything, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing well, some demographic support, affluent white support, very uh, well-educated white support, really uh, concentrating itself over time in the Democratic Party, and then having other groups much more, uh, much more up for grabs, or, or you know, not belonging to one party or the other. Yeah, it, it's almost war of attrition. Um, uh, 10, uh, 15 years ago, uh, those suburban voters were overwhelmingly Republicans. The Latino voters were overwhelmingly Democrat. Now we're seeing Democrats making inroads among suburbans, you know, it, uh, among Anglo suburbans. Uh, but that grip on the Latino vote appears to be slipping. Um, and another interesting phenomenon is, um, especially down in the Valley County, the Valley being the, uh, the Rio Grande Valley, um, because it was so Democrat for so long, 
the race was the, the races were all decided in the primaries in March and the general election was kind of an afterthought. Um, this time we have uh, several congressional races that are competitive in the valley uh, and, and also some state house uh, races that are competitive in the valley. So it'll be interesting to see if we if we see um, uh, November turnout uh, move up uh, down in South Texas where it traditionally has lagged and that and that basically hurt. Um, the Democrats, when they could count on uh, Latino support, uh, urban and rural. Yeah, I think that's an important insight you mentioned just there about how, you know, despite obviously being behind, but our work in some ways is doing better with white voters than Democrats historically have done in the South. I remember an analysis back in 2018 that pointed out that if Mississippi, which is the least white state in the union, um, if a Democrat in that state were able to get just 15 percent of the vote, they could win. And it's a struggle in a state like Mississippi to get 15 percent of the white vote for a Democrat. Obviously, Beto O'Rourke has well eclipsed that. So it's interesting to kind of note that there is some kind of uh, shift or progress, if you were, for Democrats happening there. And on the flip side, that uh, Abbott is even able to get 12 percent of the black vote or so represents a shift in the other direction, whereas typically you would expect to see 90 plus percent of Democrat, of black voters rather voting for Democrats. It's 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 interesting to watch those transitions happening in real time. But I want to ask you this. We did watch a clip of an Abbott um, ad that obviously emphasized uh, crime uh, and border crime specifically. What kinds of advertisements is Beto putting out? What are what are Texas voters looking at on their TV that's a rebuttal, if at all, to this? Um, O'Rourke is not quite as active, at least not yet, on television as the Abbott campaign is. Uh, his uh, focus with his first two ads leaned heavily into the Dobbs decision, the mm. one that basically overturned Roe v. Wade and abortion rights. Um, that's one of the avenues that uh, the Democrats think they can basically um, tap into perhaps a subterranean uh, a, a voter block. You know, uh, maybe voters who hadn't voted before or maybe voters who might have been um in favor of abortion rights, but uh, that particular issue was not a deal breaker for them. So they went ahead and voted the Republicans because the other issues were more important to them. So we will see whether the Dobbs decision actually does uh, turn into some uh, some actual support for for our work and the rest of the Democrats, um, either statewide or even in uh, swing districts. You know, Beto O'Rourke developed uh, such a, a national profile or sought a national profile, was given it, you know, with very favorable media coverage when he ran against Cruz and then, you know, kind of decided he would, he would go right to the, the presidential race, right, you know, trying, trying that out uh, for a brief time. So he, he does have um, this national profile. You know, I wondered if you think that could possibly be hurting him, uh, kind of going back to what you said in your opening remarks, that you know, now everybody knows him and it's kind of solidified more an opinion of him. But I, I wonder if it, um, I, I think maybe there's a parallel to a Stacey Abrams-type figure. Mm -hmm. You're someone who overperforms some expectation or does well for themselves, even though they don't win, and then, and then just gets gets put on such a pedestal by the national party, the national media, in, in a way that's actually kind of deferential to their, to their own sense of where they fit into the state's politics. Yeah, the presidential campaign put uh, a lot of attention on a work as it does to anybody who runs for president. And basically everything he said was captured on camera, captured on uh, video and, and, uh, and sound recording. Uh, so, so therefore, those positions that he took uh, trying to win the Democratic nomination, which basically you have to, you know, uh, lilt to the left if you're going to win uh, nationally uh, 
a, a Democratic presidential nomination. And some of those uh, comments, whether it be on the de uh, debate stage or in town hall meetings, responding to reporters' questions, voters' questions, basically staked him out as a left of center candidate. The Abbott campaign is uh, exploiting um, those remarks uh, quite effectively so far, even if they've got to kind of fudge the edges a little bit to make him sound worse or perhaps more liberal than he might otherwise be. Um, but th that that presidential exposure uh, kind of cuts both ways. It, it opens up a um, uh, an opportunity to raise a, a fair amount of money nationwide, and, but it also uh, it, it kind of exposes some vulnerabilities among um, you know right of center, even moderate right of center uh, voters here in Texas. Yeah, Robert, I think that's a really uh, good point to compare him to Stacey Abrams because, like Stacey Abrams, I remember some of those early comments you know, being taken as reflective of his ability to reach actually across the aisle and to thread a really delicate needle on some of these hot button social issues. He went viral for talking to a conservative at one of these town halls and answering their questions, a question I think about Colin Kaepernick in a way that resonated with people and wasn't off-putting to a lot of conservatives and, and helped them to understand mm -hmm. how the left saw the issue. And it does feel like being kind of pushed forward by the Democratic Party in the way that Abrams has took him away from his roots where he really recognized that he had to figure out how to communicate with everybody in his state and perhaps has um, put him in the situation where the the, the Numbers, at least the polls, at least absent one of these um, Dobbs-based swings, uh, doesn't look advantageous for him. But uh, we appreciate you joining us here today, John, to shed some light on what's going on in the Lone Star State. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you very much. And we'll have more rising for you right after this. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders had this to say when asked if he plans to run for president of the United States again. Let's watch. Do you plan to run again? That's something, you know, I, I haven't made that decision. Right now, my focus, and I'll be going around the country, dealing with trying to elect uh, often young progressives, often young people of color, yeah. who are prepared to stand up for working right. families and take on big money interests. Senator Sanders also commented on the public's faith in democracy and government. You want to restore democracy, have a government that works for ordinary people. Mm. And it has the guts. So, by the way, when you talk about politics, you understand that right now billionaires are putting hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into TV ads. And my advice to the viewers, when you see a TV ad, kind of ask yourself which billionaire is funding it and why. What do they want? They How many more say? tax yeah. breaks do they want? Yeah. How much more corporate welfare do they want? Ask that question. You, you were saying before yeah. we started uh, doing this segment that, uh, that the other guests seem angry about the way Bernie is framing Yeah, like stuff. during the panel, he was asked whether his age was an impediment to him running. And uh, he said, you know, we should focus on the the policies and the things that people support substantively, not identity factors like age or race or gender. And it seemed like some of the panelists were frustrated by him pivoting back to that. You know, he he's, was constantly accused of kind of minimizing the relevance of, of race and identity and, you know, those kinds of things. But on the other hand, many folks think that the reason he was so popular was because he had the kind of incredible message discipline that you saw right there and really is unflinching in the way that he talks about uh, working class issues. And polls show that he still is the most most viable, if not one of the most viable, if not the most viable in the list of potential um, Democratic candidates in terms of raw popularity. And you did see a change, I think, in his rhetoric here versus when he was asked about whether he was going to run before. He tended to demur and say, well, I'm not going to challenge Biden. You know, he has the right to incumbency. But as increasingly people are 
thinking that Biden may not run, it would be interesting to see if Bernie wants to take a third bite at the apple. Right, and, and the age question seems pretty silly, given that, um, I mean, Joe Biden certainly seems older than Bernie Sanders. Right. He isn't, I don't think he is older than him, but he's, he seems... No, um, I think they're about, about the they're same. About the, they're about the same age, apart. but Bernie has a lot more energy than Biden, frankly. Um, and I argue some cognitive right. sharpness as well. Uh, so I th it will be interesting. I mean, we're in increasingly talking about whether Biden will run for a second term. I've been pretty in the camp of thinking that he will. Mm -hmm. um, I, if he does run for a second term, I don't know what your thought is, but it would seem unlikely to me that uh, that Bernie would challenge him, although maybe not impossible. Right. I think that he would not challenge yeah. Biden. But if he decides not to run, is Bernie going to get into the race? It's, a, it's an interesting question. And I think perhaps even the more interesting question is how uh, excited is the left going to be about it? I think a lot of people are so despairing about the mm. opportunities for an alternative leftist candidate that they're willing to like just forgive Bernie for a whole host of sins, including what they feel like was him dropping out of the primary too early without getting sufficient concessions for the left, et cetera, or even really nailing Biden on the things that he said he was going to do, like support a $15 minimum wage, which is long overdue. At the same time, there's another part of the left which has learned its lesson from Bernie's two runs, is no longer that confident that electoralism is going to be the path to uh, broad policy victories for the left. They see the way the left has mobilized with, you know, precision against left candidates in primaries and has basically, you know, uh, formalized and, and, and perfected its ability to keep new squad members from getting into Congress. And they're like, I don't want to play this game anymore. Mm. Moreover, they see Bernie still using the kind of language that many folks attribute to his loss to in 2020 about how Biden is my friend. He's a great guy. He's doing a great job. And they question whether he has the, you know, um, you know, real dogged attitude that's required to actually distinguish uh, him from either Biden or whatever other neoliberal centrist candidate Buttigieg Harris might run. Hmm. I guess I would have a different view than people saying that. I mean, but obviously, uh, Bernie's politics are not my own. So this is pure, like, political prognostication, which, you know, take it or leave it. But uh, I would think there's a very good um, uh, avenue for Bernie if Biden doesn't run, because the other candidates are so unpopular. Uh, yeah. Kamala Harris, Mayor Pete, and I guess Gavin Newsom, Gavin Newsom leading the pack. These people are not popular at all. No. Um, and, and also, they're they're kind of... In this neoliberal, you know, progressive, but more progressive on kind of the culture stuff that is actually very toxic mm -hmm. and then not, you know, far left enough mm -hmm. for many of the kind of people that like Bernie, mm -hmm. uh, working people, et cetera. And they're all indistinguishable from each other on, on, in that vein. I mean, Bernie absolutely would have won the Democratic nomination if not for the presence of the popular former vice president of the country. And well, he still gave him a run for his money. So. And the Democratic Party. I mean, this is reported. This isn't conspiracy theory. Um, you know, Barack Obama picking up the phone and having all all of the moderates drop out so that there could be a consolidation yeah. behind Biden. Because let's not forget, Biden lost the first four, uh, three primaries yeah. badly. You yeah. know, I came in like fourth and fifth place in these states, you know. You but know. we should all stop caring what Iowa thinks. Like, it's very dumb. <laughs> it's, it doesn't I mean, matter. I mean, I mean, sure. But because we do care, it, it does become a litmus test because of the investments that are put into Iowa. And it does they can't prove even something count about your... They the votes in Iowa correctly. Well, that's true. But that's also a little bit of Pete Buttigieg's fault, LOL. Uh, I, won't, I won't take us back to, to that time. But one other 
another part of this, this Bernie story is to note that he has gotten a little bit of a feather in his cap, winning the battle over whether or not this um, uh, uh, permitting bill that many people thought was a giveaway to oil companies, and which was this like, side deal that Democrats had agreed to, that Schumer had agreed to with Joe Manchin in order to pass mm. the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. You know, they were going to, the Democrats were going to tank uh, government funding over this and, and created government, government shutdown if Bernie didn't hold the line and also Tim Kaine uh, didn't hold the line. Nope. And <laughs> Stop that. Leave, look, leave Tim Kaine alone just because it was for, forgettable okay. vice president in American, uh, vice presidential candidate in American history. Okay, he did do so. something good here. He, for whatever reason, he stood with Bernie on this. And I did it right out last week. Asking whether or not they were going to hold the line or whether they're going to bend the knee like progressives so often do, arguing, oh, getting something is better than getting nothing. Okay, fine. We'll, we'll pass your, your bill that allow the Mountain Valley pipeline to open and put the equivalent of 19 million more cars on the road. At the same time, we're singing the climate praise, praises of the Inflation Reduction Act. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I'm pleasantly surprised to see that Ber Bernie uh, showed a little chutzpah here. So what do you think? Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, look, I think he's still I, I think he's still the standard bearer for for actual, genuine, progressive uh, people. Like, there's no one else. There's no one uh, in the other people who are that far left in a, a political sense um, are are sort of your AOC type people, your squad members um, are kind of perceived as being. You know, but they've leaned in the kind of cultural, right, yeah. Volkskold type stuff, which yeah. is Bernie and Bernie alone has avoided that pitfall, uh, which is which makes him really an asset and and one that should should not be retired until he absolutely has to be because there's there's yeah. no other choice is what I would say. Let, let's again, if let's I was Chomsky advice, Bernie keep him going until he's what 94, 95 years old now. Yeah, no, maybe Chomsky. he'll still go, still going the millionaires, <laughs> billionaires. God, God bless him for it. Despite all his faults, that message discipline makes my heart grow three sizes every time I see it. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Dr. Anthony Fauci's net worth soared during the pandemic. According to a report from OpenTheBooks.com, auditors at the site received Dr. Anthony Fauci's fiscal year 2021 financial disclosures from the National Institutes of Health. And it turns out the Fauci household disclosed net worth increased from $7.6 million as of January 2019 to just over $12.6 million in December 2021. Fauci remains the most highly compensated federal employee of all, earning $456,000 in 2021 and $480,000 in 2022, even out-earning the President of the United States, four-star <laughs> generals, and roughly 4.3 million other federal bureaucrats. <laughs> U.S. Senator Roger Marshall previously forced to open Dr. Anthony Fauci's unredacted 2019 and 2020 financial disclosures, to which America's top doc had this to say. In my financial disclosure is public knowledge and has been so for the last 37 years or so, 35 years that well, the, I've been directed. The big tech giants are doing an incredible job of keeping it from being public. Uh, we'll continue to, when, to look for it. Where would we find it? All you have to do is ask for it. <laughs> I, I, you're so misinformed. It's extraordinary. Why am All I, why am I misinformed? This is a huge issue. Wouldn't you agree with me that that you have a you see things before members of Congress would see what? them, so that there's a an air of appearance that that maybe some shenanigans are going on. You know, I don't think that's. I assume that that's Senator, not the case. What I are you talking it's not about? The case. My, but, my financial disclosures are public knowledge, 
and have been so, you are getting amazingly wrong information. Yeah, I mean, it, look, to be clear, it is pretty easy to find out right. what, uh, what his salary is and then what he's being paid beyond that. It's his salary is exorbitant. He's a government he's employee. He, yeah. He, yeah, he's literally the highest paid because he's just been in government for so long. Like a and thousand it's like on a years. Pay, on a, a ratcheting up pay scale. Yeah. Now, that is in and of itself maybe its own critique, right? He is someone who was criticized for uh, his kind of professional choices in the course of the AIDS uh, pandemic, epidemic, uh, and the fact that he's been around for so long despite having some really substantive criticisms raised against him throughout is a question about the, the choices of people who have hired him and maintained him for yeah. so long. But I think the salary aspect there is less of a gotcha than just a reality of what it means to work for a place for a really long time. Sure. So we looked through what the increase is largely attributed to. He received some rewards, um, uh, some, some awards that, that contained money, um, you know, various things like that. Uh, really, this was not this is not as sizable a jump as he's going to get, I bet, in mm-hmm. the next few years. He's going to get millions more from speaking fees, mm-hmm. selling a book, perhaps sitting on a corporate board mm-hmm. or two. Or three. Uh, or he's <laughs> he's going to be exorbitantly more wealthy than this. I, I've said this is why he's retiring now, in part, because... He's, he's much. He's a very old man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's still, you know, healthy. He still has a, at least a few good years ahead of him to really make bank, and I, mm-hmm. I expect him to. And look, I don't really, um, honestly, you know, I don't care that much. Uh, especially if, if, if private, if people want to buy his book, if people want to pay him to speak, if people want to do those kinds of things, you know what? More power to him. That's not really my issue with him. Um, I, I don't care that he makes uh, money speaking in that way. It's a little bit different when he's the ease with which he can sit on a board and then lobby for policies that he, that his the team he left in place is responsible for implementing him that's a little bit dirtier. Mm-hmm. But overall my issue with Fauci is not is not it's it's his policies. It's mm-hmm. the things he he did. It's it's what he came to represent as an advocate for um, for kind of thunderously shouting down people who disagreed with the scientific consensus, while then hiding behind that. Well, I'm just giving guidance. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't shut down anything. I'm just mm-hmm. giving guidance. Well, <laughs> that's that's not how it was interpreted by you know the, all of the state local officials who treated his word as as a divine revelation for three years. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I agree. The only thing that's really untoward about what could potentially happy, happen with uh, Fauci and his um, personal wealth is whether or not there's actual corruption there, right? So mm-hmm. is he going to be lobbying, um, being paid to lobby the organization that he ha- headed for right. so many years. To require vaccines yeah, or, <laughs> or things you like know, that. In, in a way that generally benefits the pharmaceutical industries yeah. or other corporatized interests that are not aligned with the interests of the American people. That's the concern. Yes. The, the fundamental corruption of concern is whether or not people in positions of power are doing things for personal benefit as opposed to for the public good. Which is why I think some of the conservative attacks on Fauci, like the questioning we saw there in that last clip, they fall a little flat and it's it seems like a wasted opportunity because there could be an opportunity during those question and answer sessions to really drill down on how he intends to use his power, privilege, and platform I agree. after I he agree gets out you. of office and also to turn the focus on all of the corruption that is sincerely happening in Washington. I mean, 
a, a Congress member sitting there grilling Fauci about... Congress doesn't want to have that conversation because they're, it, it, exactly. they're this is what, guilty. What I'm about to say, a Congress member grilling Fauci about how much money he has when the average Congress member doubles, triples, quadruples their wealth. People like Nancy Pelosi are sitting here with tens of millions of dollars in wealth that are, are obviously not coming from her congressional salary and which are also... Uh, in, in sync with her oh, right. opposition to bans on insider trading and the like, it, it, it seems really hollow and it seems performative and political, which is especially grievous because there is a real issue here. No, I think you're right. And, and this is a huge problem that we can't trust. We can't trust Congress to regulate itself. We can't trust anyone there to do uh, things as basic as bring the Stock Act necessarily for a vote. Yeah. Right? That, and there's, there's tremendous bipartisan buy-in to the idea that, uh, that no, why, why, why would they vote to limit their financial options. Unfortunately, yeah. they're not going to. Sorry, the, both the, sides the, want to do pe- that. The people have got to start enacting some litmus tests. The people yeah. have got to stop say, to start saying, we're not going to vote for Democrats. We're not going to vote for Republicans who can't pass basic legislation like this. We talk a lot on the show about um, the money being sent to Ukraine and how the media is not covering it in a critical way. On the whole, the corporate media isn't, um, even though people are very frustrated by that. There are all of these disconnects I talked about in my radar today about mm-hmm. how there's a huge disconnect between what people want and these legislator, what these legislators are willing to provide. And it's not going to change. It's not going to change unless there start to be electoral consequences. And I'm sorry, movements of people in the street demanding different kinds of um, alternatives. Mm-hmm. But this two-party system has really got a lot of people under their thumb. It's why so many people were interested in the idea of an independent from Vermont, who is one of the few people in Congress who does make a lot of hay about these kind of corruption issues. You know, And I would like to see a lot more well, I should say a lot less acquiescence to the idea that this is just the way the world is, because it didn't always used to be this way. And we could be um, creating more pressure on politicians to do a little bit less of this grandstanding, a little bit more calling out mm-hmm. actual corruption in the ranks. And, and calling out, in the case of Fauci, the, the one thing that does certainly demand, I, I think, further uh, investigation by Congress or you know, relevant political authorities is, again, we want to get to the bottom of what research was funded and supported. Yeah. But he was a, the foremost public advocate yeah. of, of research that people have a lot of questions about. And that would be truly obscene for him to become, uh, uh, to, to make tens Hundreds of millions of dollars in the next several years, um, selling his himself, speaking, writing books about how he saved the world. When we have some questions about research he supported right. that our government funded, right. that was done, that we have questions about. Yeah, absolutely. Leave it at that. More rising right after this. Earlier this week, the AP reported that more than $12 billion in aid to Ukraine would be part of the stopgap spending bill, a bill that funds the government into mid-December, after the Biden administration requested that billions in funding be attached to the package for Ukraine. And just yesterday, another $1.1 billion weapons package was announced for the war-torn country. Here's Karine Jean-Pierre with the announcement. This includes 18 new high-mobility artillery rocket system, and also known as HIMARS, which Ukraine has used so effect- effectively on the battlefield. It is also includes hundreds of armored vehicles, radars, and counter-drone systems. We will not be deterred from supporting Ukraine. We will continue to stand with the Ukrainian people and provide them with the security assistance they need to defend themselves for as long as it takes. 
as long as it takes, or until we run out of weapons, that is. According to CNBC, the U.S. and Europe are running out of weapons to send Ukraine. Maybe the shirt's off our backs as well. This week, NATO members held a special meeting of the alliance's arms directors to discuss ways to refill members' nations' stockpiles. wonder if there are some large weapons-dealing um, uh, organizations, companies, et cetera, that can... Uh, that can provide. I'm sure they'd be so happy to do that, to it's sell good, us more it's a, weapons. It's a good thing our secretary... We're stimulating the economy. <laughs> what, how convenient that our secretary of defense is a former uh, Raytheon. Oh, wow, wow. <laughs> a, a top, top guy. Well, that's a relief. Um, think of the scale of that, uh, what that means. That yeah. the, 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 our global stock... The, the country is running out of weapons to send to Ukraine. All of the conflict that's happening in the world, all of the things that are going on around the globe... And the provision of arms to this one spot on the globe has been at such a volume that they're literally running out of materials. <laughs> yeah. Anywhere <laughs> to, to send to them. Yep. Yeah, that's something uh, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, frequent uh, guest on our show, warned that we were at, eventually we'll come to the point where we're actually depleting. The, the stockpile that we're supposed to have in the event of, uh, in the extremely, unbelievably unlikely event, but still, that's we're supposed to be prepared. That's the, the, part, point. the purpose of the U.S. government is to defend the country, the people of the U.S. from attack. Yeah. That is at its most basic, the purpose of government. Yeah, just, the most yeah. core reason we yeah. have a federal government is to protect the people of the United States from an attack. And we are, we are compromising our ability to, to do that. Um, while at the same time, perhaps making uh, an actual conflict involving the U.S. and involving U.S. forces, U.S. citizens, U.S. people, somewhat more likely yeah. by continuing to participate um, in, in this war, which needs to be needs to be brought an end to via negotiation and diplomacy. Yeah, now is the time. Now is the time. How many times can I say that? Your point about stockpiles is is well taken, especially when you reflect on what we just went through with the monkeypox vaccine. Remember, part of the scandal there was that America has historically kept stockpiles of vaccines in refrigerators across the country in case of a pandemic outbreak, right. and it had decided to let it expire, some of the biggest stockpiles expire, because it didn't want to incur the expense of maintaining them and re refreshing them. And then, uh, you know, the disease hits American shores, and we're scrambling, trying to get shots from Europe and fly them over here. So, you know, it, I know that it can seem expensive to keep stuff around for when, you right. know, in an emergency. But that, to your point, is literally the entire purpose of the American Millions government. for defense, but not one cent for tribute. That's an old, uh, that's an old U.S. <laughs> slogan. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure you know, heard that? what it means. It's no. for, uh, it's for uh, it, it was for the 1800 um, quasi-war, I believe, with, uh, with France. Mm. That um, they, the, some, the, I believe it was the French ambassador, demanded some huge bribe or something mm. and, uh, and from the U.S. government. Mm. And we said, no, millions, millions for defense. We'll spend millions on our defense, but we will not give you one cent mm. for this bribe. Well, one interesting political aspect of this is that we are having really robust conversations about how Biden's behavior will you know, affect the public one way or the other going into midterms. Whether you know, inflation coming out of the news a little bit helps him, whether mm. st student debt cancellation helps them, whether Roe v. Wade helps them, and whether Democrats are now seeing opportunities that no one anticipated a few months ago during midterms. In all of that conversation about who is going to win, whether you know the Trump candidates are going to win versus the DeSantis candidates are going to win, and whether Biden's recent gaffe is going to fell him, 
Funding for Ukraine seems to be a conversation that happens completely separate and apart from his political. Right, he, right doesn't position. even think about the political ramifications of it, even though it's but clearly the, the not popular. The public also doesn't seem like the the media yeah. isn't framing any Ukraine no. news as this is going to hurt Biden or this is going to help Biden. Only us. Yeah. We are the only ones who talk about, we're literally the only two people in the entire media, <laughs> no, virtually, who talk about um, uh, whether, who, who acknowledge that a lot of people, a lot of the American people yeah. are, are not nearly as sold, not even close to as sold on the importance of this spending as the government is. And do you include Fox News conservative outlets among? Yeah, well, no, I, well that, yeah, them as well. Certainly them as well. Um, I mean, we would do that because, because I would, but we're I would the, we're not, I would say we're the only not explicitly conservative show. But, but I would, I would, I would argue the fact that even, you know, look, if, 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 if Republicans were screaming, Joe Biden sending more money to Ukraine yeah. is a terrible idea. People don't want to vote for him. Nobody wants to vote for a warmonger. I would expect to see some responsive coverage on MSNBC and CNN because they're very reactionary. Right. They're always talking about whatever right. Fox News is talking about. And they would be also saying, well, I don't know if Biden should do this because it's going to hurt him in midterms. But that conversation is right, not, happening, not happening, which suggests to me that although there are a few figures on the right who will criticize actions like this, the establishment overall, the conservative establishment overall, is as supportive right. of this as well, the and, on, and on Fox, it, it's very. I think it's very host specific. Yeah. Uh, Tucker has been very uh, uh, skeptical of the need to help out in the Ukrainian war. He has been very critical of what we're doing. Um, I don't think that's true across the board. I, th I mean, there's, gen there's genuine differences of opinion. And, and actually, there's genuine differences of opinion among conservatives and among Republican officials, with, yeah. again, some Republican House members um, voting against this kind of thing, and, then, and most of them um, not. I, I would say there's, there's more disagreement, uh, a genuine, a healthy philosophical disagreement uh, in, in Republican and conservative circles, frankly, than there are in, uh, in, in Democratic circles. I, I agree. I, can't, I cannot and have no interest in defending progressives or the squad uh, at all on this score. They've been really disappointingly silent yeah. as these aid packages have gone out. Um, and it's caused some consternation on the left. My theory is that they've become uh, kind of very uh, responsive or, or part of, um, how would I describe it, cultural pressure in a way, mm. given that AOC and others are kind of, have become cultural figures. Their mm. fashion is critiqued. They're, I mean, they're thought leaders in a cultural sense. Mm. And the, the Hollywood and the, the kind of cultural heights of our country are so in favor of helping Ukraine. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone wanted to do their photo op with Zelensky mm -hmm. is a good example. Mm -hmm. So you would be, you would almost become a pariah in the circles they've been. But that's what they were been. supposed to do. No, I know. That's not a defense of them. And that's and an I, explanation for what they're doing. And I think it's actually sapping them of their power. Sabby yeah. Sabs, who was a guest on this show a week or two ago, uh, she did some interesting coverage recently where she pointed out, she's from the Boston area, five, I believe five squad members, uh, Ayanna Presley, AOC, Ilhan Omar, like there were like some collection of five of them came to Boston to give a talk and something like only a hundred people were in the room. And she was reflecting on how different that would be if this had happened two years ago mm. when they were, I think, taking a more adversarial posture to the Democratic Party. So mm. they can be silent at their own expense. Mm. Interesting. All right. We'll have more rising in just a minute. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Debrief. I'm here with The Hill's editor-in-chief, Bob Cusack. Bob, let's get right into it. Hey, Good Rob. to have you with us. Absolutely. 
So the news story for today is that Senate, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's support for the Electoral Count Act, what appears to be renewing the feud between McConnell and President Trump. Who else? So what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is the tension between Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump is here to stay. And Mitch McConnell has, he, he supports this bill, which got out of committee 14 to 1. Looks like it is going to pass probably in the lame duck session. And this would obviously clarify the vice president's role. So it, it's all tied to January 6th. So it's fascinating to see. I think there's going to be some 2024 people like Ted Cruz has already voted against it and maybe others in the Senate who will vote no. But this has big bipartisan support. And it's interesting because you see a lot of criticism of McConnell from uh, some of the Republican candidates running in Senate races, for instance, of the Blake Masters type people, J.D. Vance, uh, on one hand criticizing McConnell, but on the other hand, you know, still kind of reliant. They still want the the fundraising yes. uh, efforts he's able to do for them because Donald Trump has not opened up a war chest on behalf of his supposed combatants no, you know, in right. the McConnell feud. That's right. And, and Trump wants someone else to be the top Republican in the Senate, but that's not going to happen. And those candidates know that. So they've got even McConnell's not as powerful as he used to be, but he's still pretty powerful. Right, right. He, and he knows, you know, he's he's such a smart political operator. Like yes. he knows he's the foil, I think, for a lot of more Trump, explicitly Trumpian kind of new right uh, re Republican political leaders. And he's he's real. He, he only picks battles when he really wants to pick battles, right? Oh, that's that's absolutely right. And he does not like talking about Donald Trump, but. At some point, especially if Trump runs for president, he's going to be making McConnell's life more miserable. And maybe, who knows, they'll be working together again. Is there, do you think there's any, uh, apt, any interest McConnell might have in, in eventually, you know, how much longer is he going to continue to be the head of the Republican Party in, in Congress? Uh, he's taking it one Congress at a time. So yeah. every two years, he is, going to, he, he is going to run to be the top Republican, whether that's majority leader or minority leader. And then we'll see after that. You know, he is getting up there. But he's certainly said, I'm going to be around for the next couple of years. Mm. All right. Well, new polling by Gallup reveals that trust in the U.S. Supreme Court is at a record low, with just 47 percent saying they actually trust the Supreme Court. And that's six points lower than the previous record low of 53 percent in 2015. My uh, sort of sense of the trajectory of the Supreme Court and in, in terms of public opinion is that as it increasingly takes on a legislative function, right. um, because uh, actually our Congress doesn't do as much of the legislative sure. function as it used to, it lets the president, the executive branch, do what they're going to do, or there's so much uh, you know, acrimony in Congress that they're not doing anything anyway. So then the Supreme Court is is settling uh, really important political battles on abortion, on right. guns, on other things, and thus it becomes a more political-seeming institution. I totally agree. You know, elections used to solve things or resolve things mm -hmm. in politics, okay? Uh, and Congress would pass a bill, and then you'd move on. Elections would happen. Now, we didn't have a legal team of reporters. Now we do because, as you mentioned, everything is challenged in court. And, and I think the reasons for these really low numbers for the Supreme Court are because why? Conservatives are upset they didn't get rid of Obamacare. Certainly you have the abortion decision that the left doesn't like. And it's become more political. We had the Merrick Garland drama. Right. Uh, so, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg I, at the, yes, very, at the ninth inning of absolutely. the Trump administration. Absolutely. So, you know, this revered institution, not as revered anymore. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting that the Supreme Court really does have, you know, for, for the first time, 
a not not just a conservative majority. Obviously, had a Republican majority yes. many times. There are all these examples yes. which have stuck with you know true conservative uh, voters and audiences that that you had so many Republican appointed Supreme Court justices at various times, but then did not. God did not rule, issue rules oh, in right. keeping with the priorities of very Republican voters. And now you finally do have a court that is not just re majority Republican, but actually majority conservative. Right. This is, I mean, Chief uh, John Roberts is the chief justice, but this is no longer the Roberts court. No. Uh, this, this court, as it made it up now, would have, I think, thrown out Obamacare. But obviously, John Roberts had a, yeah, had, a, had a huge role in that and was reportedly behind the scenes trying to change the abortion ruling did not have the votes. He doesn't have the votes to do exactly what he wants. So I think that's a big factor as well. Yeah. But as far as we can tell, it's still a, it's still a collegial dynamic among, among along. the court. Yeah. The justices on both sides still want it to be perceived as a kind of nonpartisan or above the political fray. And I, they, get, they clearly get annoyed when, um, when in the way the court is talked about. I know Associate Justice Alito has been sounding that note, but they all do. Uh, they, they want to be perceived in a favorable, favorable fashion, but I I think there's no, in the long term, they're going to be ju perceived just as politically as any other branch of the government. Absolutely. They go after each other in, in legal writings, but yeah. then they leave it there, unlike Congress, where some members don't even, on the other side of the aisle, they don't even talk to one another. That's not the case at the Supreme Court. Cong Congress competes to, I mean, they're, they, so many people in Congress view their role as almost like a talking head, right? They're yes. doing it to appear on television, to to you know talk on social media, to, to, to weigh in as like cons conservative influential thought leaders or de Democrats as well. That's what they view their role. It'd be funny if the Supreme Court, if we go far enough, the Supreme Court heads that direction too or something well, like that. Well, as we know, there are no TV cameras in the right, Supreme Court. Right, but there's going to be, right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, there, things are changing. There's a lot of pressure uh, on that from media organizations as well. So maybe justices will, will be playing with the camera at some point. And I, ju <laughs> I just read yesterday that they are going to keep the uh, pandemic-era tradition of, uh, of, the, of audio for the Supreme yes. Court. So I believe yes. we're going to have audio for the foreseeable future. Which yes. Be yeah. Interesting. Uh, the visual could be a while. That could be a while. All right, Bob, thank you so much for joining Thanks, us. Robbie. We'll see you next week.